Saturday, February 17th, 2018. Time for episode 46 of the Barnhart Podcast. Lent is upon us and I'm hungry. And not just for a podcast, I'm hungry because I'm giving up uh, eating food. Um, I'm not going to ask what you've given up, uh, Anne, because I'm going to feel really puny in, 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 in response to that because I know you already do the full fast twice a week. So <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining whatever, whatever you do is going to be a little more aggressive than anything I'm doing. But uh, it's probably not what uh, Bergoglio did. I saw somebody tweet that he gave up 60 million Chinese Catholics for Lent. Oh, I see what you did there. You're a very clever man. Indeed, indeed. 60 million Chinese. That's uh, that's nothing to sniff at. Nothing to sniff at. Um, yeah, well, well, you know, here we are on our way in Lent, just getting started and and so far so good. Um, and I think kind of the just the main point we want to make as, as we're visiting with folks today in this podcast is um, that you know, it, it's time to, if, I assume if you're, if you're the kind of person who's listening to the Barnhart podcast and other things like this and, and reading my website and possibly other similar blogs and websites, that the whole notion of just, you know, giving up chocolate or something like that, I, I hope, I hope that people are realizing that that's, while you know, baby steps and all that, it's, it's really quite banal and, and also the legalism of it, you know, um, for example, the the I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth a little bit here. The classic whole Friday fasting or abstaining from from meat, from red meat on Fridays, for example. And by the way, we all everyone is bound to do that um, all the Fridays of Lent across the board. Um, no red meat. You shouldn't be having red meat on any Friday throughout the year. But the church, you know, it's the Novus Ordo church has become so lax that that now, I mean, it's it's just we'll take anything we can get in terms of um, the, the institutional church saying, hey, maybe you should try to limit your sensuous passions, sensual passions a little bit. Um, nobody should be should be eating red meat on Friday. And um, it's it's we wanted to make the point and as super nerd and I during the week, we're kind of exchanging notes back and forth that, you know, you're abstaining from meat on Friday, but is it really then appropriate, especially during Lent to go out on a Friday night and eat, you know, a lobster dinner? Um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of missing the spirit of the whole thing. Now I'm going to talk at about both sides of my mouth a little bit and super nerd, you jump in if, if you have anything to add, but, I do want to make the point that, you know, why why do we do the abstention from meat on Friday? Well, it's just the church saying you need to do something. You just need to do one thing at least on Friday, which is the day that our Lord suffered and died, to to remind yourself and to bring to mind his passion. And so limiting yourself from having any sort of red meat on a Friday for a person. I mean, even even me when I'm uh, I mean, I obviously I, I haven't been eating at all on Fridays for for months now, by and large. Um, but, you know, even me during the week when when I'm observing when I'm abstaining for some other reason, it, it makes you pause. It makes you stop. It makes you think. And it absolutely does. Even if it's just for a moment, it brings our Lord's passion and death to mind. And you can't think about his passion enough. His passion is, is I'm convinced, the, the primary linkage that we have with his human nature, with his humanity. And then 
as you think about his passion and his death, and you think about the fact that he is God and that he incarnated as man, it, it ties it ties his hum, humanity and his divinity together. And it makes him, it, it, by thinking about his humanity, back to my phrase, which you know is is the old quote unquote boilerplate Protestant phrase that they don't understand and that, that that they misuse the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're thinking about his passion and death, you're thinking about him as a as a person in his humanity. And if you're thinking about him in his person in his humanity. He's less and less and less just a philosophy, just a legal system. All of these these errors that people fall into when thinking about him. He's just a set of liturgical rules and fetishes. He's just um, a, a legal code. He's just this. He's just that. He's anything but a person, anything but the divine person that he is. And thinking about his passion just keeps driving us back and back and back to that. And that's why he's constantly telling, he was he is constantly telling us and through the saints, meditate on my passion, think about my passion, my passion, my passion, my passion. It's, it's so incredibly important. And so uh, just this doing this little thing of abstaining from meat on, say, Fridays, this is something that just boop, bring, brings that to mind during the day, if just for a moment. And it's a wonderful, solitary thing. Now, having said that, having said that, I also want to make the point that, yes, for example, um, on a day in which I'm abstaining from meat, but in which I'm still eating, I'm not doing a full one, 100% fast. Um, one of the things that I love to eat on abstain from meat days is a salad that has a little bit I'll buy a packet of smoked salmon and put a little bit of smoked salmon in the salad to just to pump pump a little bit of protein in, and I'll generally add some boiled egg or something like that again to add some protein. And the thing about this is, is that smoked salmon is is one of my favorite things in the world. I just absolutely love smoked salmon. So our Lord loves us so much and he's so good that he says, okay, I want you to do this thing and I, I want it to bring my passion to mind. But instead of having red meat, I'm, I want you to have Anne, one of your most favorite things to eat in the world, which is smoked salmon. I mean, how we have to we have to point out how good he is that we're none of us are just suffering 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 because of this because unless you have some horrible allergy or something and I guess there are a few people that just absolutely loathe all manner of seafood but you know you can eat seafoods on on Fridays or days of abstention and um and it's absolutely delicious and so it's not even as if he's he's saying I just want to take all, I just want to suck every bit of joy and happiness out of your life. He's saying, here's, do, do this little thing for me to remember my passion. But even in doing that, I still love you so much. And I want to, I want to shower you with the abundance of, of this planet that I've given you. Yeah, go ahead and, and eat one of your favorite things in the world on that day of abstention. Do you, do you have anything you want to add to that thought, Super Nerd? Well, I was just going to say, it reminds me of a topic that I uh, heard on, on a, uh, another Catholic podcast in the last week. They were talking about uh, fasting and the, the whole idea of substitution. And so the idea being that if you are craving a steak and it's Friday, then, then 
having the, the smoked salmon or something like that as a substitution for it. Yes, legally that's that's accurate, and I'm certainly not denigrating anything anything you're doing there. But mm-hmm. there there is also the the aspect of the more perfect, where in, instead of saying uh, in, instead of having the the smoked salmon, you know, perfect seafood dinner to go with something that satisfies the requirements of nutrition, but also is a a denial of the the the, the taste pleasure that you could have. So so rather mm. rather than say the smoked salmon on your your salad, just plain tuna out of the can. Without yeah. any kind of seasoning, I mean, you still get the protein, you still get yep. everything you need to keep the keep the body going, um, but it, it still has that that penitential aspect of you're you're denying yourself the 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 savors and and the the other goodness of it. And of course, after after Lent's over, um, then by all means, knock yourself out. And, and of course, seafood, yes, it's awesome. I'm 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 not one of these Catholics who only eat seafood on on Fridays. Um, it, it's, it's got me some strange looks in the past where it's, Hey, it's Saturday. Why are you ordering salmon? It's like, I like it. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. But that's, that's, yeah, about that, all I that's, a good, that's a good point. And it is important in particularly certain in particular, certainly during Lent, but I think just for all of us, and I think we've talked about this before and I can't remember exactly what the context was, but I, I remember making the point that in, in this day and age, we, we in the Western world, we just have access to pretty much absolutely anything that we want in terms of our senses at any time and certainly in terms of food we can we can have pretty much anything we want at any time you walk into a supermarket and just everything is there everything and this is unprecedented in human history and so this notion especially for western man of of just going without Anything is is almost so foreign that, yes, it is true that for us, especially who are so used to indulging, I guess that's the word I'm going for, just this this over the top 1000 percent constant indulgence of absolutely everything that we want sensually that, yeah, it's a really good point that, you know, when it is Friday and I do and I do want to have. Um, you know, the ribeye with the with the green pepper sauce or whatever it is um, that may maybe just a, a, an old can of tuna, which is something that I don't particularly like. I don't particularly like tuna out of the can. You're absolutely right. Maybe that's that's something we, we should be turning to instead of um, <laughs> favorite seafood product uh, ever smoked salmon or whatever your preferred is. If you like to buy those little little shrimps and make shrimp salad or whatever it is. Sure, it's going with the spirit of the law or the spirit of the rule or the spirit of the discipline excuse me it's going with the letter of the discipline but are we really are we really doing as much as we could as much as we should and then this kind of segues into um something that i put in the notes about this about you know just the overall kind of omnipresent scandal that that hangs over modern North American, Western European, whatever you want to call it, Catholic culture of, um, you know, just this constant idea of Catholics just gaming the system, just gaming the system, looking at what what the quote unquote law or quote, quote unquote rule is, and then just constantly trying to figure out ways around it, ways to cheat it. Et cetera, et cetera. Which I believe um, is your point of saying the Catholics need to take a page out of the Protestants book and, and actually develop that that personal relationship with Christ. And, you know, they got it from 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 Christianity before this before the split. So 
why they got that and we forgot about it. I don't know. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, it's it was the scandal that I always heard people talking about when I was a kid about Catholics gaming the system, in particular with regards to the confessional. The thing that I heard growing up in the Bible Belt and, you know, out in western Kansas and, and all this, and it's, it, this is absolutely true. This is 100% true. People would say, oh, those damn Catholics, you know, they go out, they go out on Friday and Saturday, Saturday night, they get absolutely falling down drunk. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're, they're you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, yada, yada, yada. We, we all know what we're talking about there. And then, and then Sunday morning, they just, they just stagger into the confessional and they babble their prayers and they make their little confession and it's all good. And then they're the ones who either talking about them partying on the weekends or partying on the weekends and then being dishonest in business. That's another thing that I heard a lot. People complaining about how Catholics were dishonest in business during the week. And then, well, that's okay because they just they just go to confession. And I, I guess it's okay then, isn't it? And this, this is absolutely true. This, this critique is 100% correct. And that is why um, presumption of God's mercy is is considered to be basically the worst sin there is. And if you think about it, and if you think about it again in terms of our Lord as a person, it becomes crystal clear why presuming upon God's mercy is is basically just about the the worst thing you can do. So you know who our Lord is, you know his church, you know his sacraments. You know that he went to the cross and died for your sins. You know he's God incarnate. You you know all these things. And publicly, you confess believing all these things. And then what you choose to do with that is you choose to say to yourself, all right, he went to the cross. He died for my sins. He he wanted to do that. All right, let him, let him have it then. I'm going to do what I want, and then I'm he has to legally forgive me my sins. If I go to the confessional and I make my confession after I've, you know, screwed everyone over in business all week, then went out and got drunk and violated the sixth commandment Friday and Saturday nights, as long as I, I'm, I'm just going to go to the box because if I go into the confessional box on Sunday morning and I make my confession and I say my little prayers, then he is legally obliged. He's legally obliged to forgive me. And so, I'm all good. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of psychopathy, as far as I'm concerned. And the irony is, the people who believe that that Jesus is legally obliged to pardon them in that situation have completely overlooked the fact that legally they did not complete the requirement for forgiveness. Indeed, is isn't that isn't that the 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 sticker of it? And that's why you know, in every trad missile I've ever seen, there's you know. In the section on making a good confession, examination of conscience, da da da, there's always a very prominent blurb about exactly this: presuming upon God's mercy. And if you are, if you go into the confessional and you are not sorry, and it is your intention to do the same damn thing to screw people over in business during the week, to go get drunk and violate the sixth commandment the next weekend, if that's what your intention is. And you're and you're just gaming the system, and you know you're gaming the system. And, and come on, let's be honest. At this point, um, let let's talk about violating the sixth commandment in terms of pornography and self abuse and things like this. 
if you're if you're going in and you're and you're just babbling this confession and you have absolutely no intention and you know you have no intention of stopping doing any of this stuff your confession not only is it invalid but it's an act of sacrilege and so now you have the the sin of sacrilege of 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 aping the sacrament of penance if you receive holy communion after the after this and you are in mortal sin and you kind of and you fake confess your mortal sins with no intention of stopping no intention of reforming your life then you go and receive holy communion that's sacrilege and you've got that sin on you as well and so this thing it just builds and builds and builds and as we've talked about before you know people sit around and and wonder how how can the society just be so far gone how can people be so stupid how can people be so weak how can people not not see what's going on how can they possibly tolerate this stuff it's because sin makes you stupid go ahead or or how can the church be in the the state that it is mm. and if you are are going to communion in the state of sin it reminds me of a story um, I don't recall the author off the top of my head. If somebody recognizes it, uh, e- email the podcast and let me know who, who said this. But it, it was a it was one of the young uh, rebels in in, in um, taking part in the French Revolution. He was trying to lose his sense of shame and to deny the faith, but he could not get over the sense of shame of of, of the sins that he was committing. And the advice he got from a the diabolic advice he got was to was to intentionally commit mortal sins and make bad communions. That yes. going that the sacrilegious communions within a couple of weeks, you will have lost all memory of the faith. And yep. that's a scary thing to think about with regard to people who don't make good confessions, either because they weren't catechized or they just take blow it off and take it lightly. You will lose the faith. Yes. And, and once and you lose it, God has no obligation to, to return that gift to you. Yes. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the man who advised the young man to make sacrilegious communions was Voltaire, I want to say. That, that sounds about uh, right. Yeah. And it's, it's so true. It, but it also, it makes people, it makes people intellectually stupid. Um, the, the inability to, I'm convinced that this whole inability to think in any sort of a logic, logical progression, which the, the, the evanescence of that ability is only a few decades old. I mean, people people could think. People had common sense. Well, and let let's put put the supreme example in front in front of us and just cut to the chase. This whole business of grown adult people honestly arguing that um, there's no such thing as sex. There's no such thing as male and female. And that you know, if a, if a child comes out of the womb and the child has you know a, a scrotum, two testicles, a penis, so on and so forth, that there's absolutely no information in that there is no conclusion that can be drawn from that that has no meaning this this whole absolutely utterly insane and these people are serious they seriously believe this crap um bruce jenner you know being convinced that he's that he's female or something like that this level of insanity and this inability to or, or refusal to deal with objective reality, think in any sort of logical progression, so on and so forth. This is a function of just wallowing in sin. And a lot of that, especially in the church today, is a function of all of these acts of sacrilege that are going on, either sacrilegious 
confessions. But let's be honest, in the Novus Ordo Church, I mean, you just don't see confessions being heard that much anymore. It's it's very, very rare. And when they're done, it it's done so badly. And maybe this would be an opportune time just to talk about how to make a confession. Because I, I you know, you I see it all the time. You know, I, I bounce around I bounce around when making confession, um, when confessing. I don't, um, I prefer to confess anonymously. And so if, if I have the opportunity to do that, I avail myself to, of that. And what that means is that means that you're confessing in, in Novus Ordo parishes. And so just as an example, a few months ago, I go into a Novus Ordo parish and there's a priest and I say, hello, Father, um, I, I w- would you hear my confession? And oh, yes, certainly, certainly. And so he points over in the corner, and sure enough, I mean, this is this is an old construction church. There's really not an excuse for this. There's no confessionals. They've taken all the confessionals out. All right, whatever. He points over in a corner, and oh, yep, there it is. There's the chair. There's, or the two chairs, excuse me, the two chairs. And so he points over there, and I say, okay, here we go. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised, Novus Ordo. Okay, so go over. He sits down in the chair, and Instead of me going and sitting down in the chair set up right across from him, oh no no, see lady, this is this, this is where this is our point of departure here. When you confess, it should be first and foremost you should be kneeling. You should have the 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 correct posture, physical posture, and the correct physical posture for um, accusing yourself of sin and asking forgiveness for those sins, forgiveness and absolution, is on your knees. Now, unle- it, it, now obviously, common sense applies. If you're a, a, an older person and you have a problem with kneeling or you have some sort of a current injury or, or something like that, well, of course, you don't have to kneel if you're physically incapable of doing that. But the vast majority, majority of us and the vast majority of people listening to this podcast can get down on their knees and can kneel for a few minutes. This is not a problem, okay? So that's number one. The the proper posture is not sitting and it's not looking eye to eye with the priest. First of all, the the penitent, the, the person who's making the confession, should have some expectation and and um and should be able to have a, a level of anonymity. Ideally, a, a person who goes to confession should have complete anonymity. The priest doesn't see you because there's a grate. There should, that's why there's a box with a grate. It keeps the priest separated so that he cannot see the person who is confessing to him. This is all a function of the importance of anonymity in confession. Number two, the whole business of looking eye to eye you know, aside from what I just said, putting that aside, again, that puts a whole completely different dynamic. And if you've ever gone into a Novus Ordo church and you've seen this, you've seen this setup where they've got, you know, the two chairs sitting face to face out in the open. Um, and they tend to do this like on Good Friday or something like that, the, which is kind of the one time of the year that a few Catholics still even go to confession and they'll have lines. So they'll set it up and you can see it that they're sitting out in the open, but if it's a big church, they're far away. So your sins can't be heard, but you're still seen. They're also doing it to protect themselves because a lot of these priests 
I, I don't know how in a confessional, if, if you're using a proper confessional box, but many boys have been molested by these sodomite priests within the context of confession. So now a lot of priests only want to have only want to hear confession if they're sitting completely out in the open, completely visually exposed. All right, whatever. But if you watch people when they're making confession like that, when they're looking eye to eye with the priest, you can tell even if you're standing you know, many, 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 many feet away. You can't hear a word that's being said, obviously, obviously, but you can see what's going on. You can tell by the body language. You can tell by the posture that the person isn't accusing themselves of sin. They are making an argument. They're, they're, you know, the classic uh, confession of the mother-in-law who who goes to confession and instead of accusing herself of her own sins, she spends 20 minutes accusing her daughter-in-law of all, all of her sins, you know? You can tell by looking at people. They're turning it into a self-justifying therapy session. And sometimes you can see the priest. You can tell by his body language that he's, he's trying to, um, what's the word, affirm them or... Or you know, justify them or whatever. I was going to say one of the one of the great uh, graces, perhaps, of, of the the traditional style um, confessionals is you can't see when the priest rolls his eyes. <laughs> I'm, yeah, just, yeah, I'm, just, right. I'm just thinking when something like that happens, and and uh, I'm, I'm jutting in on your point here. But there's something that that um, jumps out at me is I forget where I heard this, what context I heard it in, but the whole the whole idea the human being is both body and soul. So what the body does affects the soul, and this could be food in the case of diets, which we talked about before. Or, but it also means posture. So when you are on your knees and bowing your head, that means mm-hmm. something. And when you're yes. sitting down, this is why the priest is sitting for confession. He is sitting in the place of God judging you. He is sitting in judgment. That's why you're supposed to be kneeling. And and all the other physical attributes that go along with, with what you're describing here, who, who, what's what's the nature of, of, of uh, relationship between people who actually look at each other in the eye when they talk? They're equals. They're equals, yeah. I, I exactly. don't normally recommend a lot of movies, but there's there's a there's there's a few awesome scenes to just to describe. Even in secular societies, we've ripped on Japan and, and the the um, the the moral degradation of, of that country several times. But there was a movie that came out I don't know how many years ago now called The Last Samurai, and all of the scenes where the Japanese emperor people are talking to him, they are profoundly bowing. You never turn your back on him. You never look at him directly in the eye. And this is a secular ruler. Mm-hmm. Even pagans it, understand this. Even pagans understand it. it's it's built in. It's innate. Everybody should understand this. But that's that's a function of the Freemasonic infiltration. And one of the things that they that they lyingly told people is that you have to stop act, acting like infants. You have to stand up on your own two feet, and you have to be you have to be more of an adult. And of course, what do we see? Go to a Novus Ordo Mass, and you'll never see anything so infantile in in your life as a no as a bad Novus Ordo Mass, it which is so very common. So back to my story, I go into this church. He points, there's the two chairs, walk over, he sits down. I walk, if you can envision this, so he's sitting in a in a chair out in the open. I walk around behind him, and I am facing um, perpendicular, I kneel down but directly behind him, but perpendicular, so that he would be, let's say he is facing due north, I'm kneeling directly behind him, behind the back of his chair, and I'm facing due west, okay? And so what that does is that 
It puts me in the proper physical posture. It gives me the screen of anonymity. So there's no eye contact or anything like that. Um, and what does he do? What, what do you think the priest did? Um, get up, sit down and look at me and, uh, when yep. you're talking to me. Yep. He, he got up, he turned around, he turned the chair around and I stood up and I walked around behind him and I knelt down again. I'm and he went and he said, and he, get out. <laughs> no, he didn't know. He said, Oh, okay. And then I start, you know, you start the, the confession in the kind of the, the, the old traditional formula, bless me, father, for I've sinned. It's been so many days since my last confession, since my last confession, I accuse myself of. And then as soon as he heard that, you know, he knew, (laughs) he knew even more that, that this was not going to be his typical little therapy session. And, you know, I, and, and that's, I, that's really important. Um, that little formula right there, that gets you off on the right foot. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been X number of days, weeks, months, years, decades, whatever it happens to be, since my last confession. Since my last confession, I accuse myself of, and then you go, okay? That you know, grammatically, prosaically, it starts you out correctly. I accuse myself of not, well, I was at work and my boss did this. No, 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 no. What did you do? What are your sins? Not really interested in anyone else's. What are your sins? Now, if there is context that it is absolutely essential needs to be added in terms of what something that someone else did that can be that can be very judiciously added but another point that comes up is that when you make a confession you may never ever ever reveal the sins of another person by name even if even if you um uh, were equal an equal participant let's be honest let's talk about grown up things here Let's say let's say somebody fornicated and you're going you're going to confess fornication. You may not say who the person that you fornicated with was. No, absolutely not. You may not name them. You you say I fornicated you know with a man da 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 da. da. You can add a little bit of context if if it's necessary. But if it's not necessary, then everything else needs to be left off. And you certainly cannot name who you're fornicating with. No way, Jose. Um, so well, there's it, another it tip the of point, things that I don't think people have ever been taught. Go ahead. I was going to say, it gets to the point of, of, of accusing yourself of, of relevant details. And, uh, and I don't remember where I heard this line either. But if you don't act as the prosecuting attorney before the merciful judge of the priest in confession, then the devil will before the, 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 uh, at your judgment. And mm-hmm. that's not going to go very well. So take advantage of the fact that while mercy is available to you to accuse yourself completely, but the, the whole, the whole point about the circumstances really matter. I mean, if you say I stole a baseball card from somebody, okay, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but let's say it's somebody who was a special needs person who was devoted and attached to that. For some reason, he loved it. And in his, in his fit of crying or whatnot, he knocked over a candle that burned down the house and five people died. You kind of need to give all the details 
when you confess something. So you can't just say, technically, that's all I did. So that's all I'm going to confess. No, you actually have to confess the what the follow on results are if they are sure. if they are relevant. But if, like I said, the big one, uh, fornicating for most people is what it would be. Um, you're not permitted to reveal by name um, who you did whatever with. So just to make that clear to people, again, people have never been taught any of this. They just they just don't have any idea. So there's just a, a few very, very quick notes on confession, and, and then what's the formula for wrapping up? Um, oh, one of the things that it's that it's I think salutary to do is every time at the end of of, of your confession, um, say just not not make a general confession, but say I also renounce all of the sins of my previous life, which include. And then if, if you want to hit the, the very, very high points, I mean, if you, if, if you are a person who used to engage, you know, habitually in mortal sin of whatever category, just hit the high points of, of that, you know, I, um, I, I renounce all the sins of my former life, which include da, 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 da. Again, we're not talking about life history here. We're talking about rattling off. Oh, let, let's say, for example, self-abuse, okay? I, I renounce all the sins of my former life, which include, hypothetically now speaking, self-abuse. And then if, there's, if there are any more in the big mortal sin category that you just, you want to mention, I've been told, again, Novus Ordo, and I, I think Jesuit um, priests, uh, when I, you know, I generally do this at the end of my confession, and I've been I've been yelled at for that. No, don't do that. Those sins are over. Those sins those sins are are forgiven. They're absolved. Don't ever mention them again. Don't ever think about them again. That is completely wrong, ladies and gentlemen. Don't believe that for a second. The fruit of the first sorrowful mystery is sorrow for sin. Um, and a lot of times when people first confess a sin, especially just a a more a terrible mortal sin. What what happens is that over time, as they advance in sanctity, they they learn more about the faith. They learn more about our Lord. They they develop a deeper and more profound personal relationship with our Lord, and they realize as time passes, with with more and more depth, how truly horrific their sins were so that maybe the first time and and thanks be to God and don't hesitate um, going in and confessing a sin, even though you're thinking to yourself, I don't really understand why. And um, I really, I don't feel, you know, I don't feel profoundly sorry that that's most people actually most people. And in fact, it's a good thing that as you move forward, hopefully all people as they move, move forward through time would be advancing in sanctity, right? That's, that's the idea. That's the goal. That's what we're always praying for. And all these post communions of the mass is that they, we just keep advancing, advancing, advancing in sanctity and getting closer and closer to God. The further you go, the more you realize how horrible your sins, the sins of your previous life were. And so it's it's a good thing that you still keep thinking about the sins of your previous life. You you maybe research, learn, study, 
um, realize why it is that the sins you committed are sins. And then you start to realize, oh my goodness, they, they hurt our Lord so much. I was hurting myself so much. I was hurting other people so much. I was contributing to the downfall of our society and our culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As you move forward and you develop more sorrow for sin, it's wonderful. It is so wonderful. And it is such a manifestation of our Lord's mercy that you can keep going to the confessional every time and just tack on this little bit at the end. I also renounce the sins of my former life, which include da 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 da. And when you do that and when you say that, you know, obviously, our Lord knows your heart better than you know your own heart. So when you do that, he knows exactly how much now more sorry you are. And think about how, how what that must mean to him. I say mean to him in terms of God. I know this is getting a little bit, it's getting a little bit theologically muddy, but he, he does have a human nature. And do you not think that he's overjoyed? Do you not think that he is overjoyed as you advance in sanctity and have a more profound realization, why in the world do you think that, that we have the rosary and we have the first sorrowful mystery praying about his agony in the garden, the fruit of which is sorrow for sin, understanding why. So when this is a very common modern thing, when a priest tells you, Sins that have been absolved in the confessional, don't ever think about them again. Don't ever mention them again. Sorry, no, that's all Novus Ordo nonsense. Keep thinking about it. And, and I think I've received a lot of emails as, you know, we had that series a few weeks ago about that doesn't go there and so on and so forth. And Sixth Commandment and sexual morality, especially within the context of marriage. I've received so many emails from people who have said, Oh my gosh, this is this is just made all the difference. And I I see now, I see now that I had been committing sin. I didn't even realize it or I sort of realized it. Now I realize it with a with a with more depth and more clarity and it's it's just only good. It's only good if you have a deeper, clearer understanding of your own sins. Even if those sins are decades in your past, it's better for you if you, um, if now you un- you understand in real time about sins that might that you might have committed. For some people, it's you know fifty, sixty years ago. But to understand them now and to understand them better before you die, what an what an incredible grace that is. And you're also this underscores the importance. Obviously, a lot of people are not well formed in their catechism, but you know priests fall into this category too. And for them to be getting after you for uh, renouncing sins that you've um, that you've not fallen into recently, but used to be prominent in your life. This is overlooking the fact that confession is not just for the, your current sins, but also for overall strengthening of your soul to add to, to reinforce against weaknesses. It, it, it's a weak analogy, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. If you're, if you're a tennis player and you are horrible at backhand return shots and you happen to win a game, but you never got tested by anything like that, that doesn't mean you don't ever work on that again. So you, you need to find all the areas where you're weak spiritually and work on them. And it's not, it's not a matter of, of trying to induce a, you know, a spiritual, uh, hypochondria. There is a proper term for that, and I forgot it. <laughs> but the the point is, you don't obsess over the over your weaknesses and, and start seeing sins where they don't exist. I mean, you always scrupulosity is yeah, that, that the word exactly. you were looking for? Yeah. <laughs> why, why these words evade me at times? I don't know. But um, yeah, don't get scrupulous over these things. I mean, the 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 
the moral mean is always right in the middle. So you don't blow it off and you don't get scrupulous about it, but realize there is definite benefit in recognizing what your chief faults are or chief fault and, and confessing that. Um, the, the formula I use at the end of my confessions is, you know, for these and all the sins of my past life, especially sins against, you know, kicking the dogs, the neighbor's dog, because I really enjoy that for some reason. Um, <laughs> just make, just whatever is, is appropriate for you. And one other thing in terms of confessions, um, advice I, I heard actually within the last five years is it, when you start your confession is to give a brief indication, especially when you do have that sense of anonymity with the priest where the priest really has no idea who you are is to give a quick overview, like one sentence of where you are in your life. So bless you, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. I am a 35-year-old married man, or I am a 25-year-old mm-hmm. single man. Because what you say in the context of your sins changes uh, based on, especially you talk about the sins against the Sixth Commandment, um, whether you're married or single or what your state in life is or how old you are, that makes a difference in, in the, the, the severity of some of this stuff. Right, absolutely. And again, no life stories and just general admonition. Um, folks, it's not therapy. It's not therapy. So don't go in there and just and just start s- telling a priest your life story. First of all, it's inconsiderate if there's a line, first and foremost. And second of all, that's not what it's for. If you want spiritual direction or, or therapy or something like that, you go make an appointment with a priest and you can talk to a priest outside the context of the confessional. The confessional is for the sacrament of penance. It's for you confessing your sins and receiving receiving abs- penance and absolution for them. Um, that's it. So please don't don't go in and and treat it like it's Oprah's Oprah's couch or something like that. That's just completely inappropriate. And if you go in, if you get into a, a situation where the priest is trying to turn it into Oprah's con, in, in, into Oprah's sofa, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. Get down on your knees. Get where there's no eye contact and um, and confess your sins properly and soberly, directly, um, and. Only good things can come from it. And, and listen very carefully what he says. Now, a lot of people might be surprised that I go to Novus Ordo priests quite often for confession. I tell you what, folks, I've had I've had some pretty amazing, remarkable, unpredictable things said to me within the context of the sacrament of confession by Novus Ordo priests. Things that, that I could almost describe as being off the wall, but off the wall, but so, so utterly specific that it was, you know, it made me, it made me realize that, you know, this really is a sacrament. God's grace is flowing here. There's things going on here that I can't see or understand. There's things going on that the priest can't see or understand. And it's give it a chance, you know, um, God is God will try to speak to you. Um, I'm convinced, but you you have to go and you have to you have to listen. Even even from from Novus Ordo priests, even from Novus Ordo priests like the one I was talking about who wanted wanted to have the Oprah therapy session with me, and I had to physically get myself up, move around behind him, and kneel down. He said things that that were helpful to me. Okay, so so don't don't be a snob about it. Go and just 
confess your sins, do it. The priest has the power of, of forgiving sins. It doesn't matter uh, where he was ordained. It doesn't matter what, what version of the mass he says. And it can be, especially for people who have been raised in tradition or have been around it for a long time, you can inadvertently develop a bunker mentality. And the idea of, I'm not going to talk to a Novus Ordo priest ever again, only one who talks, who, who says the mass in Latin. And it can be tremendously reassuring to realize that, hey, the, the priest next parish down the, in the local parish is a really good confessor. And if things hit the fan and and I've got to got to get to confession fast, I don't have to drive an hour and a half for confession. Five minutes away will do because I've already found out that this is this is a good priest. It's yeah. it's it's very reassuring. Yes, and I'd even take it a step further and say, look, you you know you mind your business and you make a good confession yourself, and then as long as the priest, uh, even if he's a you know, even if he's a, a heretic, look, he's validly ordained. It's our Lord is the actor. As long as the priest um, says the words of absolution, it's done. It's done. And you don't need to agonize. We're not Donatists. We keep saying this over and over and over again. It's you don't need to agonize over the internal state of any priest, whether, whether he's Novus Ordo or Trad. I mean, you, you cannot be held responsible for the internal goings-on. Obviously, if, if you know that if you encounter a priest and you know that he, he just isn't good and he just isn't sound, no, I cannot tell you in good conscience, yeah, go go ahead, go, go to confession. But look, if, you, if you're going in somewhere and it's anonymous, you don't, you don't know who the priest is necessarily, you don't have to be agonizing over what is, the, what is the internal state of this guy's soul. That's donatism. That's a heresy. Um, you mind your business. You make a good confession. Um, one thing I will say we should mention is if um, the priest it is unsound and says something like, and I, I've gotten this once, I got this once, of all places in the cathedral at Denver. Um, I have no idea who this priest was, but he said, for your penance, I want you to go do something nice for yourself. No, 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 no. And any of you that read Father Z, um, he talks about this fairly regularly. If you're given some penance that is, that's A, ridiculous, um, B, you have no way of knowing um, when you've completed it, Something like that. Um, I had a priest once tell me, um, I, I want you to look up this certain book. Uh, I can't quite remember what it's called. I think it's called this, but I don't know. I can't quite remember the title. Well, what does that mean? You want me to look up a book of which you can't even remember the title. Okay, how do I know when I've completed that? That's that's so completely that's so completely nebulous that it, it isn't even it isn't even a valid thing. No, you say, no, I'm sorry, Father, that's that's too ambiguous. Can you please give me a penance that I can do and that I can know when I've done it, that I can know that that I have completed it? And then he'll say, like, well, yeah, I guess go say one Hail Mary or something. Yeah, well, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what I mean. Even if it's just one Hail Mary, then that's fine. Go ahead. Uh, ironically, the priests who are the most likely to give an ambiguous uh, penance like this, if you say, Father, I'm not unwilling to do penance, but I, I'm not sure I, I, I this will work, it would feel better for me if you give me something discreet. Mm. You're speaking their language, actually. That's that point. their language. Exactly. Exactly. So don't let them get away with that. Make sure that it's that it's a penance that you can go, you can do. 
it's finished, and then make sure that that they say the words of absolution and it's done. And remember, Christ is the actor. Christ is the actor. It's the it's His power, His grace flowing through, um, flowing through the person of the priest. You're not held responsible for anything inside of the brain of the priest. Um, like I said, he could be a heretic. He's validly ordained. If you if he says things to you that are just absolutely terrible, yes, and by by all means, avoid. In fact, I very sad. I got a uh, an email from a woman within the last week. Again, I'm still getting emails about the the series we did a few weeks ago um, on six commandment issues within the context of marriage specifically. And one of these typical horror stories that one of these priests told her that you know she should go vi- violate the sixth commandment that it would do her good. Um, that she should lighten up, you know, so to speak, um, something like that. Obviously, if you should, after a confession like that, if something that truly wicked is said, um, you should try to make a note of who the priest was and then never, oh, no, I, I could never in good t- conscience, unless you were in danger of death, I could never recommend that you intentionally go to that priest again. Well, I've I've heard the analogy that the priest confession is like a telephone where the, the, the penitent is confessing to God and, and getting the response from God. And if you've ever had a, a, a telephone call with really bad quality or that got you got dropped, yeah, some priests are not the best conductors of communication. But the point is you do need to go to confession frequently, even if it's in the Byzantine rite, for example. <laughs> oh, certainly. Absolutely. Oh, hey, there's a segue right there. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Byzantine right there. Um, obviously, with everything that's going on right now in in the church, people are are looking around and saying, OK, where where do we go? Uh, do, is there an alternative here? Um, first thing we need to say is that um, going to the Eastern Orthodox Church, that that is not an option. I'm sorry, but that is just not an option. Um, what there is, however, is that there is the entire Eastern Byzantine branch of the Catholic Church. And for anyone who's ever been to a, for example, a, a Yuki, a Ukrainian parish, Ukrainian Greek Catholic is often how they term themselves, Ruthenian Catholic, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of names. There's and there's multiple there's multiple Eastern rites, but the most common in North America certainly is the Byzantine rite, the rite of Saint John Chrysostom. Um, almost always, these are quote unquote Ukrainian parishes. There's a lot of Ukrainians in North America. There's a boatload of Ukrainians in Canada. Um, and lots of Yuki parishes. And these are Catholic churches. They're 100% Catholic. It's just that it's a different rite. There's the Roman rite, and then there's the Byzantine rite, this Eastern rite. Oh, beautiful, 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 beautiful liturgy. And absolutely Catholic, in union with the Catholic Church, same Eucharist, same everything, same sacraments, absolutely. However, there are a few things that you need to look out for because with the Byzantine wing of the Catholic Church, it's just exactly like the Roman right wing. There's good and there's bad. And there's a few things that you need to be aware of and you need to be looking out for. First overarching point of concern, um, there are what are called um, liturgical fetishists. And these are usually men and these are usually sodomite men who are who have become very interested and fascinated 
with liturgy, just qua liturgy. I had one described to me, a priest was talking to me about this fellow that I had unfortunately crossed paths with, and he said, my dear, don't ever, ever mistake liturgical fetishism for religion. So-and-so doesn't have a, a, a religious bone in his body. He's a pure liturgical fetishist. So be be aware of this. There are these people who have now attached themselves to the Byzantine rite purely solely for the liturgical fetishism because it's the new thing. It's the new quote-unquote elite thing. In, in some circles, in some of these circles of these um, sodomite intellectual liturgical fetishists, um, there are now too many people and too many people of insufficiently grand intellect or, or grand status who are now finding their way back to the traditional Roman rite. So it's no, it no longer has the sense of eliteness for them. And that's all they're concerned about. Um, they, they don't want the Novus Ordo to go away precisely because the Novus Ordo is where all, all the peasants can go and all of the elites that they cast themselves as, diabol- it, it's all tied in with the diabolical narcissism work, um, casting themselves as an elite, they were viewing the, the Tridentine Rite as the, the haven for the quote-unquote elites. Now, over the last 10, 15 years, or particularly since Morum Pontificum, which has now been 10 years ago, they view um, the the Tridentine Rite as not being exclusive enough anymore. There's too many people, and there's too many insufficiently elite people who are now finding their way to um, the traditional Rite. And so now what they've latched onto is, is the Byzantine Rite, and that's the new, quote-unquote, cool, super-elite um, fetish for these liturgical fetishist, oftentimes intellectual, and like I said, oftentimes sodomites. So be very, very careful about that. Middle-aged men hanging around Byzantine parishes, um, you know, serving and so forth. You, you need to stop and ask yourself the question, what's going on here? Why is this person here? Why is, what's going on? Is, the, is this just an effort to get close to, you know, the, the young lads in the parish who are back also serving, the young lads should be serving because serving is how vocations are developed. Some of the young lads in the parish, you know, presumably might have vocations um, to the monastic life or to the priesthood. And serving is a very, very important part of that. So why, why do we have these very queenie, effeminate, middle-aged men serving at the Byzantine Rite hanging around? This is, this is all very strange. And who also lead you know, morally depraved lives outside, outside of the context of, of Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30. I mean, come on. We need to start asking these questions. Number two, when you go to a um, Byzantine Rite, there are some questions that you need to ask right away. First observation that you need to make is what we just segued into is confessions. Are confessions being heard? It's, again, it's hit and miss. Um, There are some um, Byzantine Rite parishes where it's like the Novus Ordo, like bad Novus Ordo, where they're only basically hearing confessions twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Um, Are confessions being heard? This this is very big because there are some there are some people in the Eastern branch, both in Eastern Orthodoxy and in the Eastern uh, Catholics, 
who say, well, it doesn't matter. You don't have to go to confession because all of your sins are forgiven as you approach to receive Holy Communion. Uh, n- no, the, the sacrament of confession is the sacrament of confession. And it's exactly the same. This is very important to remember. It's exactly the same church. It's exactly the same sacraments. It's exactly the same Eucharist. It's exactly the same, same moral law. Everything is exactly the same. So it, it is utterly irrational and completely nonsensical and red flags should fly up immediately if someone says to you, well, if you're going to receive Holy Communion in the Roman Rite, well, yeah, you you should go to confession. But no, you don't need to go to confession if you're going to receive Holy Communion if you go to Divine Liturgy. That that's that's crazy. That makes no sense, and that should throw up a red flag. It's it's also wrong. Conf- if confessions are heard, that's a very good sign. Um, number two, <laughs> again, this is can't believe this is even a problem, but it is. Does the priest believe in the filioque? And you say, what does the filioque? Does the priest believe that the Holy Ghost proceeds from both the Father and the Son? This is Nicene Creed, man. This is this is it. This is what it was about, getting the processions of the Trinity right. Does God the Holy Ghost proceed from both the Father and the Son, filio quae, in Latin, when you put quae on the end of the word, that means and. So, filio, Son, plus quae, quae means and. So, the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son, filio quae. That's what's in the Nicene Creed. There are people in the East who deny this. They say that, no, the Holy Ghost only proceeds from the Father. And so, it's, and so you've got the Father at the top, and instead of having a triangle with, with three closed sides, you have just an upward-pointing you know, arrow, like a carrot, the bottom is open because there's no connection in their theology between the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now, first of all, this problem was solved a long, long, long time ago. 325 been, A.D. Yes, yeah. It's it, they, they ran into this pretty early, and they fixed it, and it got fixed and settled very early. There are still people who are just trying to deny this dogma and it's it's dogma it's a deal breaker if if you're if you're if you don't believe in the filioque if you do not believe that the holy ghost proceeds from both the father and the son you're not catholic you're not catholic period okay um so ask about the filioque um ask if if the priest believes that the blessed virgin was conceived without the stain of original sin Ask if they believe in the Immaculate Conception. This is another problem that exists in the East, particularly amongst the Eastern Orthodox, obviously, but it's also present, sadly, in, in Byzantine Catholics as well. Um, again, this is, this is infallibly defined dogma. Our Lady was born with, was conceived without the stain of original sin. If you deny that that is true, infallibly defined dogma, it's a deal breaker. You're not Catholic, Okay. So you need to ask that question. Make sure that the parish is sound. The parish priest is sound. Um, does the parish, the parish priest, are they hypersensitive and resentful of quote unquote Romanisms or Latinisms? That that is to say, for example, if you were to to go into a Byzantine Catholic church, and divine liturgy is being celebrated, now 
in most places, especially in North America, it's probably going to be celebrated mostly in the vernacular. Let's say you go into into a, a Byzantine Catholic parish and, and the liturgy is being celebrated in church Slavonic. Okay, you can't understand a word that's being said. There might be a worship aid, but, you know, church Sl- Slavonic is so radically different from our language. I mean, it's not it's not a, a Latin based language. It's to our ear, it's really, really difficult to understand. So even using a, 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 a mass guy, a divine liturgy supplement where you've got the words written phonetically in church Slavonic, and then you've got the English on the other side, it's still incredibly difficult to follow just because our ears are not, are not used to listening to these sounds that this language of, of church Slavonic is making. And it, it's very similar to Russian. Um, so very difficult. So, for example, let's say, or if you went to Vespers or something like that, that if, if you took out your rosary and you started praying your rosary, w- would they find that offensive? Would, that, would they find it offensive that you were coming into their parish and, and quote unquote, infecting it with all with your Romanisms or with your Latinisms? OK, if they are, there's a really, really big problem there. Um, the mother of God gave the rosary to St. Dominic and said, do this. This will be extraordinarily helpful to you if you do this. Are we to believe, are, are we in all seriousness to believe that that only applies to people who live to the west of arbitrary and ever-shifting political boundaries in Eastern Europe? I mean, seriously? Seriously. You're, you're going to be offended you're going to be offended if I go into a Catholic church and pray the rosary given to St. Dominic by the mother of God. Really, you're going to be offended by that. That would be a very, very big red flag to me as well. Um, well, is there and, any equivalent or substitute um, devotion that is practiced in the East? I mean, if they're going to reject the Romanism of the rosary, to, to use that term, what do they use in its place? There is there is something that's kind of sort of like it, but I think it's it's more it's a very simple chant of just um, God have mercy on me a sinner, God have mercy on me a sinner. Um, it, but it's not the rosary. Um, but again, why why would you be offended by the rosary? I mean, I just I I can't even begin to get my head around that. W- would I be offended if if a uh, if a Ruthenian came into a Roman Rite parish? And was, you know, doing Ruthenian devotions or like doing that, doing that, that little uh, prayer bead chain thing where they just say over and over, Christ have mercy on me, a sinner. What person in their right mind could possibly be offended by that? I mean, this is that's crazy. And then the ultimate manifestation of this, and I've personally run into this and this, this is just scandalous. Um, going to a divine liturgy and have having people be offended that you kneel to receive um, the Eucharist. Now, I I did this and asked a asked a Byzantine rite priest in advance. It's okay if I just kneel down when I receive Holy Communion, right? He said, "Of course, of course, that's fine." Well, I go and I do this. Turns out this was taken as this massive, massive offense. And I, I'm like, what, what in the world are you talking about? So you're telling me that if I go to receive Holy Communion, the same God, the same Mass, the same Eucharist, the same real presence, exactly the same person 
It's Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same person. When I go into this church over here, yes, you should go kneel. You should, you should go kneel. But when you go into this Catholic church over here, then you are, you are, cre- you are creating this terrible offense. You're making this incredibly prideful display. You're insulting the entire Eastern church if you kneel down to receive our Eucharistic Lord. Uh, no, that, that is, that's another massive red flag. That's a problem. And I was told, I had this explained to me by a Byzantine Catholic priest that, you know, you, we look, uh, especially those of us in, in the Latin church, in the, in the Western and the Roman church, we look at the beauty of the Byzantine liturgy. And because it, it's mostly, that beauty is mostly still intact relative to, you know, before 1963 or 65, whenever you want to draw the line, the Easterners didn't have nearly the liturgical catastrophe that the the Western church had with the introduction of the Novus Ordo. But this priest said to me, he said, modernism still infected terribly the Eastern part of the church as well. Think of it as an egg. Think of it as an egg. And if anyone has ever blown an egg when making, you know, Easter eggs or anything like that, you have the, you poke a hole in the top of the eggshell. We're talking about a raw egg here. You poke a hole in the bottom and then you have that little air pumper thing and you can blow the contents of the egg out the bottom, the hole that you've poked in the bottom. And he said, the East is like a blown egg. The, the shell is still intact and the shell is is the liturgy and it's the beauty of the liturgy of the Byzantine liturgy. Um, but the modernism, what that infection did is that it blew the contents of the egg out in the Western church with the Novus Ordo paradigm. What happened is that you had the egg. And then you just took the egg and Paul VI threw it against a wall as hard as he possibly could and shattered everything. The contents of the egg are gone and the shell is gone. And remember, the shell is the liturgy. In the East, what the modernists did was that instead of throwing the egg against the wall as hard as they can, they as they could, in a lot of instances, what happened is that the egg just got blown, but the shell is still there. So don't be fooled. Just because you see spectacularly beautiful liturgy, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's soundness of doctrine and, and true religion and true piety there. You still have to be, you know, wise as serpents, ask some questions, investigate, and don't just be bowled over by the the dazzling beauty of the rite of of John Chrysostom, which it's very easy to do, especially if there's a good choir. Oh man, oh that chant! And you can you can pull this music up on YouTube. Um, some of it's Catholic, some of it's Orthodox, but a lot of that that chant is obviously very is is shared. It's common, and it's just some of it is just achingly, achingly, achingly beautiful. And then to hear it in person. In, in the context, in the space of a, of a church um, with the sound bouncing and, and just and the smell of the incense and the sounds and the sights of, of the beautiful Byzantine liturgy. It's very easy to be dazzled, but you still have to have your wits about you and make sure that everything's on the up and up and there aren't any of these horrible, huge problems. Otherwise, you're going to find out that you've walked into a building where you have twice the liturgy and half the dogma and, and no real faith. 
Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, a lot of people in terms of this Bergoglio, it's really frustrating to me. They're saying, that's it. I, I'm going to the Eastern Orthodox. And as spe- in particular, with regards to um, anti-Pope Bergoglio's attacks on on marriage. And, and I just look at that and I shake my head and I think, what are these people thinking? What are you what are you talking about? You're, so you're you're absolutely incensed and scandalized that anti-Pope Bergoglio, who, you know, I, I'm hard pressed to think what the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist would do differently from Bergoglio if Bergoglio is not, in fact, the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. I mean, Bergoglio is just is hitting is hitting crossing every T and dotting every I in terms of attacking marriage and the fa- and the family. Um, I would imagine the actual uh, false prophet will ban marriage and force sodomy. Ooh, well, give Bergoglio time. <laughs> um, so y- these people are scandalized and they say, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the Eastern Orthodox. You guys, you realize that the Eastern Orthodox are completely unsound on all of this. They've been allowing, you know, they've, they allow the second marriage and it's, it gets a blessing, but it's not, it's not as strong of a blessing as, you know, your first marriage was. And then if your second marriage fails, you can get a third marriage and you can get that blessed, but that blessing is even less strong than the second marriage i mean it's an absolute farce oh, yeah, they're the, complete the, the first marriage, the first marriage is at the communion rail the second one is at the middle of the church the third one is literally in the vestibule and i don't know what happens after that i guess you're yeah, literally you're out of the church at that point i mean maybe that's the symbology i don't know well yeah and l- remember um the musloids how many do they get they get four so eastern orthodox get three i thought they get four at a time say again i thought it was four at a time well, that's true. But, uh, you know, technically, in the Eastern Orthodox, it's three at the same time, too, right? Uh, <laughs> or at least that's the argument that they're trying to make. I, I don't know. They're unsound on contraception. They're unsound on all of this stuff. So why, why would you why would you run off to the Eastern Orthodox in protest to what Bergoglio is doing to questions of marriage? I mean, that's just... That makes less than zero sense. And I get emails saying that all the time, all the time. And the problem with the Eastern Orthodox that they've had all along and still have is that they are, they're run by governments. Look what Bergoglio is doing to the Chinese church. And what he's basically doing is he's setting, setting it up to be in exactly the same position that all of these Eastern Orthodox churches were. You know, I mean, the joke about the joke about the Eastern the, or the Patriarch of Moscow being a KGB agent, um, that actually isn't much of a joke at all. And in fact, in some cases, it hasn't been a joke. It's been deathly serious that, they, that these Eastern quote unquote lower sea um, Orthodox churches have been clients of of their reg- of their respective regimes and puppets and tools of their respective government regimes, and that is inverted. The the state exists to serve the church, not the other way around. Which is not to say that their their orders are invalid. I mean, there are many cases of of the Jesuit mis- missionaries in Central uh, America literally being CIA agents, but that wasn't their primary task. They were doing that in addition to being missionaries and whether or not that was a good idea or not is another matter entirely but uh saying that the the the, the patriarch in moscow was literally a cia or it was literally a, um a KGB, kgb agent that doesn't mean he wasn't a valid he had valid orders so that just wanted to make that distinction yeah but it's just it's kind of just the whole 
I think they know going in, they know going in that, and they view it as a, just an arm of a secular political, of a secular political career. And it's just that their particular, <laughs> this is, sounds so weird, their, their particular branch of government is the Orthodox Church, you know, and, and they keep an eye on that. And that's their little domain over there. It's just, it's, it's so spectacularly unhealthy on so many levels. But I just want to make sure everybody does understand that there is a difference between the Eastern Orthodox and the Eastern Rite Catholics. And as I said before at the beginning, Byzantine isn't the only right. There's, well, we can name, there's Cyril Malabar, there's Maronite, there's, there's, um, what's the one in Ethiopia, so on and so forth. There's, there's all manner of rites in the Eastern church. Um, but for most of the people listening to this podcast, you're probably going to get into some sort of a, um, Ukrainian or Greek Catholic church that is saying either the right of John Chrysostom or more rarely the the bazillion right, the right of um, St. Basil the Great. Oh, I thought you said Brazilian at first. I was like, that's a little bit of a jump. Nope, nope. Bazillion. <laughs> Got it. Got it. B-A-S-I-L-I-A-N. So that's my little rant on on the Byzantine wing of the church. So yeah, definitely. If you are looking to go that direction, I I would imagine the the legitimate, if you want to call them that, um, Catholic Byzantines, they probably would not be offended by asking if the if they pray the rosary and if they have the full faith. I would imagine they probably get that question more frequently than we would imagine. Mm-hmm. And they by now they should probably have um, answers prepared for that or not be not be shocked by it. And frankly, they should they should be happy to have people come and there's I don't think there's anything wrong now I'm a Roman Rite Catholic period full stop but in there have been times there was a window of a couple of years when I was in fact able to go to divine liturgy I'd go about once every six weeks or so and then I would consistently go they did Vespers on Saturday night and I would consistently go to their Saturday Vespers and it was it was one of the highlights of my week I loved it very much and it's it's the church it's Capital T, capital C. I, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine how our Lord could possibly be um, upset or off-put with anybody partaking of, of both of these these rites, and especially now in these dark days, that if the, if the Yuki Parish is where you're going to go to get actual Catholicism, if it's a choice between listening to some sodomite heretic you know, completely upend the, the moral order in at the local Novus Ordo, or you drive 15 minutes and, hey, here's this this lovely Ukrainian Greek Catholic parish. Well, that's a no-brainer. Absolutely go go to the Yuki parish. But always remember that you're a Roman Rite Catholic, and, and, and I, I don't think it's, you don't need to, like, quote-unquote convert or anything like that. That's that's thinking about it the wrong way. Um, just in this in this state of emergency, and and it's a it's a grace that there are these Yuki parishes, and and we can go there, and the the reciprocal would be true of them if they ever for any any reason if they're traveling or if something happens and and their parish goes to heck in a handbasket and so, and there's some unsound priest or priests in there, then certainly they could avail themselves of the Roman rite and 
we would be delighted to see them and be delighted to have them. I, in fact, know priests who say divine liturgy in Roman Rite parishes on Roman Rite altars. That's absolutely possible to do. Um, so it's it's one church. I, I, I don't understand the whole the whole tribalistic um and and you will hear some people in the Byz- in the Byzantine Catholic Church refer to the Eastern Church as our church and refer to the Roman Rite as you know them or their church. It's it's extremely unhealthy. It's extremely unhealthy. It's all the same church. It's just two different rites within the same church. Well, it, it's it's manifesting political realities that literally go back to the fifth century with the divided Roman Empire and all the politics that happened as a result of that. So it's it's. Hopefully, you know. Ideally, you you wouldn't have the theological split as well. That happened in the in the one thousands. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's 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 unfortunate because, the, like you said, the the liturgies are impressive, and and the the tongue in cheek line about it being twice the liturgy and half the theology. I mean, it sounds cute and funny and all that, but unfortunately, it's true in a lot of cases. Yes, the outward beauty doesn't mean anything if the substance behind it isn't there. Absolutely true. And the, and there is substance behind the Eastern Rite. It's just that, like I said, modernism has infected them too. So you got to be careful. Modernism, the synthesis of all heresies, which says there is no heresy. So Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> topic for another show. I don't want, we can go quite a ways on that. Um, let's see, we talked earlier about um, rosary. Um, actually, do, do the Byzant- are you aware of any Byzantine chapels that, that, uh, where they pray the rosary? Just out of curiosity, I say this as, as somebody who's never been to the Byzantine at all. I've never seen it, no. But again, don't don't take that as you know absolute hard and fast. Um, if anybody out there listening, if if you know of a of a Yuki Parish where they're saying the Rosary, please send send us an email at podcast at barnhart.biz and and let us know. Heck yeah, we say the Rosary and and right before Divine Liturgy, sure we do. I don't know, I've not seen it myself, but my experience is. I was going to say you've only been to a handful of them, right? Just a handful, yeah. Yep. The rosary is is important. I mean, even even Nancy Pelosi on the on the floor of the, the of the house <laughs> mentioned uh, praying the full fifteen uh, decade uh, rosary, which I, I was I was more impressed by the fact that she referred to the full the full uh, rosary as as fifteen decades. I thought that was a very luminous uh, um, uh, surprise to, to see that. But then she wasn't <laughs> she wasn't being serious. She immediately said, "Oh, but we're not going to do that now. We're going to talk about the dreamers," which that was all part of her eight hour filibuster. But that was one of the. Every once in a while, you know, <laughs> somebody can say something surprisingly, um, surprisingly orthodox, and then she, you know, got up, brushed herself off, and pretended it didn't, didn't happen. Well, you know why that is? It's because Nancy Pelosi has probably not actually prayed the rosary since many, many, many years before JP two um, promulgated his so-called luminous mysteries. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Maybe that's a question out there. No, I do not. I do not pray the luminous mysteries and you don't either. Do you super nerd? What's a, what's this again? The luminous I, I, mysteries. I know. No, I do not. I do not. <laughs> and there are all kinds of, of jokes that are, that are made about that. You have a pretty good one. Um, someone emails in and asks, um, is it okay to pray the luminous mysteries? And the response is, uh, I think it was as long as you don't forget to pray the rosary. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's it's been a while since I wrote that joke, so. <laughs> and you know, we we chuckle, but there's there's a truth behind it. It's the whole notion with modernism and with the Novus Ordo, the post, the Vatican II and the Novus Ordo Church and the the Freemasonic infiltration, that everything has to be new and changing. Everything is constantly in flux. Everything is new 
and everything is changing. Things that are new are better than, than things that are old. And for anything to be legitimate, it has to be constantly in flux and it has to be constantly changing. These are very 20th century, heretical, philosophical um, ideas. And so um, it's just it's just really offensive to think that this, as I said, the rosary, which the, the mother of God gave to St. Dominic to think that it was not quite good enough, that it was it was lacking something that it needed. It needed the post Vatican II modern man, the new and everlasting man to finally complete and perfect it because it, it just wasn't quite good enough before as it was given by the mother of God to St. Dominic and as it was prayed from that time until 1980, whatever it was, whenever that happened or 90, whatever it was. Um, that's, that's just a, that's just an offensive thought to me. And so, yes, we do tend to get a little bit grumpy and bristly and make jokes about the luminous mysteries. Um, I think, I think the rosary is the way it is and is structured the way it is for a very, very, very good reason. And the mysteries are what they are and they're in the order that they're in and the fruits of the mysteries are what they are for a reason. And I will take it as it was given by the mother of God to St. Dominic and the universal church. And I really don't see the need to look at these modern innovations and developments that seem to just be rooted in nothing, nothing else than newness for the sake of newness and change for the sake of change. I reject that. Indeed. And, um, talking about the rosary and, and prayers, obviously for, for Lent, uh, in addition to fasting, uh, we're supposed to be doing something additional. Uh, so for example, reading spiritual, reading spiritual books, for example, um, the, the divine scripture or sacred scriptures would be a, a good one. Um, last episode, we had a few links for some suggested listening and reading, and we have a few more for this time as well. Um, one of them that you recommended, Anne, which I'm smacking my forehead that I forgot to include this, was The Imitation of Christ, uh, written yes. by Thomas Akempis. Talk about something that's not new. This has been around a long time. Uh, we'll, we'll have links in here for a free audiobook, free ebook, and then there's also the Dead Tree version you can buy uh, online or in, or. You might even be able to pick it up in Barnes and Noble. I don't know. Um, it's it's a very old book, and it's it's. Uh, I've heard it said that it's one of the top four or five most um, popular books in terms of uh, sales uh, among Catholic bookstores. So uh, you should be able to find this anywhere. And of course, it, it is freely available online as well. Yes, and you can t- and you can tell by the title, "Imitation of Christ," that it is going to be both challenging and extraordinary extraordinarily salutary so yes absolutely and there's no excuse now because all these things are they're free they're all online um all these things are obviously outside of copyright and there they are right there on the internet as i often often refer to the little baby televisions that we all carry around with us in our pockets and our purses that we sleep in the bed with us because for m- many of us, it's the alarm clock and there it is within inches of us for almost the entire day. All of these things, almost all of these things are available free on your baby television. So there really isn't much of an excuse. Um, the other one I mentioned was um, story of a soul, which is the little autobiography of St. Therese of Lisieux, which is a charming read and, and also very solitary and covers a lot of ground. Um, that that's great. The other thing, um, most people also during Lent will pick a book of the Bible, usually the old Testament, um, Isaiah, Job, 
um, wisdom. Uh, in fact, w- one thing that would be very good for um, in particular converts to do is is the so-called apocrypha, the the seven books that are missing, quote unquote missing, what were removed by Martin Luther from the Protestant Bibles and were actually included in all Protestant Bibles as an appendix up until I believe it was the middle of the 19th century. It's just a very, very, very recent thing that Protestants, you know, have absolutely no idea about these seven books of, of the Old Testament that Luther, again, Luther removed because they directly refuted his his heresies. And so being the psychopath that he was, he just said, well, I'm going to tear them all out. And that's exactly what he did. If you're a convert in particular, you should really go in and dive into um, the so-called apoc- apocrypha and make sure that you're that you're familiarized with those seven books of the Bible. Because if you are a Protestant, if even if you were doing, you know, quote unquote, Protestant Bible study and all of that, you're not going to have any familiarity with these books, and they're so rich. So um, um, I would strongly recommend that as well. Or just Isaiah, Job, Ezekiel, you know, whichever you want to attack. Or just the Gospel of St. John and really meditate on the Passion. I mean, that is the the time of year we're in. Um, Also some good listening material as well. I'm going to include a link to a a Lenten mission series from from a priest who – actually, it's two priests who give this. It's a really good series called Climbing the Mountain of God. And um, I believe, oh, this is all free, of course, uh, freely available to download or listen to on your smart device or computer. Um, Also, a a podcast, uh, I think you mentioned Father Z a little bit earlier. Uh, He does a a podcast called, um, well, this time of year, he's calling it the Lentcast. But it's a daily five-minute meditation where he picks something from uh, the scriptures or from uh, spiritual readings of St. Augustine or or St. Alphonsus. And it's a good little five-minute nugget of, of something to think about. And just orient your day. It's a good. It's a good one to start off with in the morning. Absolutely, and he's been doing that for years and years. And I don't know if he's making any. I don't know if he's still making new ones, but he's got a huge library. He's got a huge audio library. Those are fantastic. Um, let's see. Is there anything else that we were going to mention? We've got a nice little list from the previous. I don't know. Maybe we should republish also the list that was on um, the previous podcast and just you know kind of keep rolling it keep rolling this list and let it grow and put the new stuff at the top maybe we should do it like that sounds good uh, i'll just cool. uh, pull that from the old one and so the at the at the bottom of the show notes it's going to be uh, expansive and getting larger as we go through lent great fantastic we'll have quite a list when we get to the when we get to easter that'll be that'll be wonderful and eventually maybe we can split this off to its own page i don't know yeah absolutely that wouldn't be difficult at all Okay. Did you want to attack another topic or are we good for no, now? No, I, in fact, I've got, I've got something I need to do. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I think we should, I think we should wrap it up. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and this gets to a, a little bit, uh, a question I posted on Twitter, whether or not, um, whether or not it, it's more, people find it more beneficial to do a, a longer form podcast, 90 minutes or more, uh, or to have a bunch of shorter ones. And i wasn't really sure what the response was going to be, but the, to the degree that there was any consistency, the, what was mentioned is just do the longer ones because, uh, the, 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 the tangents of conversation was some, something that came up multiple times from different people. It's like, that's one of my favorite parts of the conversation. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, if we're doing shorter, trying to do it at 20, 30 minutes, we're definitely going to stunt the side conversations for sure. So, but if right. you, if you disagree with that, you know, the email address for pod for, for feedback, whether it's uh, comments, suggestions, et cetera, the email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for ends benefactors. If you're hearing this podcast, 
There was a mass offered for, for Ann's benefactors today. That's right. Seven days a week, plus a requiem every week. Please take a moment to join your your with your prayer intentions with those of the priests offering these masses. And please don't forget to pray for the priests as well. They are human. They have to go to confession just like us. Uh, and they certainly need our prayers. This is a Super Nerd Media production, this podcast. And uh, I want to thank real quick JPF, Charles, and H, who uh, mailed in a postal money order. I haven't seen one of those in years. They, they It's really pretty. I just haven't yeah, seen them in a while. They? It's a really <laughs> neat combination of, of, of uh, purple and green. I, I didn't know what that's what they look like. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, not just because it's artwork, but uh, thank you very much for your support. And also, please don't forget about the Matthew 1720 initiative. Did I get the numbers right? Yep. Matthew 1720. Okay. Um, I'm doing full fast on Tuesday and Friday, twice a week, you know, um, just stepping it up, especially now in Lent, doing something going above and beyond. I'm doing full fast, but of course, anybody's free to do whatever they can. And of course, you know, my intention, it is for um, public recognition of the Bergolian anti-papacy, re- public recognition of Ratzinger as being the one and only living Pope and having been all along, the nullification, obviously, of the entirety of the um, Bergolian anti-papacy. And then, of course, this and this is this is huge, this is what it all turns on, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger, also repent, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision. Because remember, if if we don't get those two things, then it's incomplete. It'll be the situation will be incomplete. And I'm not going to hand this knot to the Blessed Mother and say, "Oh, you only have to untie it a third of the way or half of the way." That's ridiculous. If you've got a knot and it needs to be untied, and you present it to the Blessed Mother. Um, it needs, the only thing that it makes sense to ask for is that she untie it all the way. That's, that's, then that's what she wants too. And that's what God wants. All these knots need to be untied all the way. And so if we carry this all the way to to the logical conclusion, the obvious conclusion, it's that both of these men, both Bergoglio and Pope Benedict, um, both achieve the beatific vision someday. And, you know, as, as strident and as, as much as I, you know, wake up every day and I'm ready, ready to do battle with anti-Pope Bergoglio over what he's doing um, and what he has done and what he will continue to do to the church. Um, I still don't want him to go to hell because if you spend any time at all thinking about hell, what you quickly, what you quickly realize is that the old saying is true. You wouldn't, you shouldn't wish hell on your worst enemy. You should not wish hell on your worst enemy. And if you do, you clearly don't understand it. And if you don't understand it, then you're at risk of going there. So we pray, we pray for the, the salvation of the soul, the repentance, reversion to Catholicism, um, make a good confession, someday die in the state of grace and achieve the beatific version, even for Bergoglio. In fact, even especially for Bergoglio, because he's, God has put him in front of all of us. He's right there in front of us. So there's no, there's no excuse for us not praying for him. Absolutely. And what a, what a spectacular conversion that would be. And, and, I wonder how many souls that would that would genuinely affect. I, I would imagine that would that would positively affect a lot of people. And I think there's one thing that we we've kept forgetting for a couple of episodes, but I know you wanted to talk about it, and this is the t- this is exactly the segue for it. You wanted to say something about Peter. Is that correct? Oh, <laughs> yes. I I made a 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a cradle Catholic, so I didn't have the, the scriptures perfectly memorized, but uh, I made a comment, <laughs> I made a comment in a, in a previous podcast about uh, Peter as Pope denying Christ. And um, if you go back and look at the chronology correctly, the way it goes is the promises made, you know, that thou art Peter, Matthew 16, 18. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not doing this off the top of my head. I had to do the research first. And then Peter denied Christ at the court of the high priest, John 18, 17. And then the fulfillment of, of the of the promise, uh, feed my sheep. And of course, that if you, if you look at the scriptures there, right before Christ says, feed my sheep, and that's when the moonness is given, the mandate is given. He asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And that was giving Christ giving Peter the chance three times to undo his his uh, denial because he denied Christ three times and then he affirmed three times at, at Christ's uh, inquiry, do you love me? And so that was... Once that was done, and of course, this is obviously after the resurrection. So right, right. the the munus of the Petrine office is bestowed um, in that in that period after the resurrection, but but before the ascension. And then um, I kind of made some inquiries about what exactly happened at Pentecost. And yes, that you know the gifts of the Holy Ghost, poor Holy Ghost. He's always, he's always kind of forgotten and marginalized, you know, Pentecost was a really, really big deal. And it's kind of been, especially lately over the last several decades, it's just been kind of turned into not such a big deal. Novus Ordo, promulgation of the Novus Ordo, very famously, the octave of Pentecost was suppressed. And so, um, it's Pentecost was a huge deal that it, it, Pentecost is considered to be the the birthday of the church, as you, if you will. And let me pull up the exact quote that I got about it. I have it right here in front of me. Da, 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 da. Hold on. Uh, here it is. Um, the, the church's prerogative to teach infallibly and indefectively and indefectively was given at Pentecost, so it would therefore be a small step to infer that Peter, too, received at this time his participation in those gifts, that is, to teach infallibly and indefectibly. Um, So, yeah, Pentecost was just, it was a huge deal, and it was the beginning of, uh, I think we can safely say that it was the beginning of papal infallibility. And even if it wasn't... um yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I mean, this is something where when we were putting together the notes, um, I, I made a point that uh, let's let's uh, address uh, Pentecost in general in about uh, seven or eight weeks when we're a little well, bit closer we to will, it. We will revisit it. We'll have a whole Pentecost episode. And right. Well, the, the birth of the church actually was Good Friday. Uh, the, the whole symbolic, the symbology of, of Christ having his side opened up with the lance is is visually symbolic. And, and of course, the, the water and, and blood coming out, that was symbolic of, of uh, God taking uh, Eve from the, from the side of Adam. So the mystical, bro- the mystical uh, body of Christ taken from the body of Christ, the birthday of the church is on Good Friday. And the, the, the joke I made is the initial baptismal offering was on, on um, mm-hmm. or the IBO was, was on Pentecost. <laughs> the IBO, yeah, so I like that. It was, it was already up and going, but they went public on, on uh, Pentecost. Well said, well said for, for modern ears. Very good. For, for any of the financial fans who actually slugged all the way through this, to, to Indeed. There's, your, there's your payoff at the end. There you go. We do what we can. (laughs) Until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless.